Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. More bills have been moving through Connecticut's legislature, including legislation that would eliminate religious exemptions to school vaccines. And what's happening with efforts to legalize cannabis? Also, how will the governor and lawmakers use federal stimulus money to balance the next two-year budget? Coming up, we'll hear from WFSB Channel 3 chief political reporter Susan Raff. First, we talked to House Minority Leader Vincent Candelora about the issues before the Connecticut General Assembly. Candelora is a Republican serving his eighth term in the legislature, and he represents the towns of North Brantford, Guilford, Durham, and Wallingford. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Representative Candelora, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, as I mentioned, you've been on the show before, but could you briefly describe your role as House Minority Leader? I think it's fair to say not all residents understand the leadership structure in the General Assembly. Sure. What, what happens in November after uh, the Assembly is elected, uh, each caucus selects a leader, um, which is elected internally. And um, as leader, we uh, are responsible for sort of overseeing the caucus. Um, assigning uh, roles to, to each member and providing their committees and sort of setting the policy uh, of the House Republican Party. Uh, and so I also work with the other side of the aisle, obviously, um, in crafting various pieces of legislation. Thank you for that. Uh, before we talk about more Connecticut-specific issues, uh, just yesterday, former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was convicted on murder charges and the death of George Floyd. What was your reaction to that outcome? Yeah, I mean, I think part of me is, uh, it, it's a sad day. You know, it, I, I'm glad that justice is working through the process. I think overall, it was very heartening to see people um, sort of celebrating in an appropriate way and talking about the victim and what happened and trying to move forward as a country. Um, and I, I think that the dialogue is moving in a much healthier spot, um, but we're, we're just generally in tough times. I think on the one hand, people certainly seek justice, um, but we also need to um, balance that with the um, recognizing all the good efforts that our police forces do in our country to keep us safe. And I think, you know, we need to maintain that balance. And uh, I think that dialogue is getting there. We know after the death of George Floyd, so many Americans pushing for police accountability, even in our state, uh, there was a police reform bill passed uh, last summer. I know you voted against that bill. When you look back through this last year, also the postponements of parts of the bill, I understand, has, has your opinion changed at all with some of the measures before the lawmakers? I actually think the bill needs to be improved based on what I've seen. You know, for instance, 
in my neighboring town of Brantford, we had a shooting last week and um, that shooter potentially could have killed many people, but the Brantford and surrounding police departments had equipment uh, to bring in to help evacuate individuals and protect them. Uh, all of that military style equipment is now banned under that bill. And I think it's important for our officers to have access to that type of equipment to keep our uh, individuals safe. You know, additionally, we, we read in the story, I, I, you know, a little girl was found in a truck um, who was kidnapped um, for many months and by a relative. Um, we've eliminated the ability to do consent searches. If that girl was in Connecticut, she might not have been found in that bed of the truck. So I do think that that bill went too far and we are gonna need to make improvements. We've already made some incremental improvements um, this past month uh, on the use of force policies for our officers. But I do think we need to look at the bill in the context of keeping our residents safe. You mentioned that there needs to be a balance uh, calling for accountability, but also recognizing uh, the work of law enforcement in many communities. But what would you say to residents in our state who are people of color who say that more needs to be done to make policing fair in their community? Yeah, I think what we need to do as communities, I mean, granted, I, I don't live in a city and I'm certainly not an expert on this. But when I look at how, for instance, the city of New Haven, um, that police force uh, operates under a community policing type atmosphere. And it, it really is a community effort. Um, it's not a us against them type of mentality. And I think community policing is very important. Uh, in our town, we have, for instance, you know, the, uh, the resource officers and um, they provide a very positive atmosphere for children. Some schools don't have that same experience. So I think uh, trying to create standards that provide for that type of positive experience and positive facilitation with our officers, uh, I think is important because they provide an important role in our society. And we need to try to embrace that and come to a better understanding. Uh, just one more question related to that, Representative Candelora. I'm thinking about the city of Waterbury, where there have been some uh, real significant issues with how school resource officers have been called in uh, when children, especially those that um, have uh, traumatic backgrounds and how uh, they've been pulled out of school or been responded to by school resource officers. So how can the state work to make sure that those kinds of encounters don't happen? Yeah, so I think what we need to sort of unpeel is, you know, are they, you know, to what extent are they the resource resource officers versus um, the police responding to a call to our schools? Uh, in either situation, I think we need appropriate training. Um, so we have officers that are responding um, into our schools uh, that are doing it in an appropriate manner, because um, if you're just calling an officer off the street and they're treating it uh, like any other you know, criminal incident or, or allegation, uh, it, it has a, certainly a different flavor in our schools. And I think it's imperative for our administrators to also set an example and step up and work with the departments to sort of set that right tone. Um, because I've heard very disparaging um, positions on that issue. So there are many schools that love their officers and many schools that have problems. And let's figure out a, a way to fix it as opposed to removing those officers from our schools entirely. I don't think that's a solution either.
perhaps more support for these administrators and teachers and counselors that are trained to deal with children uh, who are having difficulty before calling in a police officer? Yeah, definitely. I think especially coming out of COVID, you know, one of the, the impacts that we're concerned about is the mental health of students and how they're reacting going back to school, the anxieties. And so I think there needs to be more emphasis put into uh, mental health and counseling in our school districts. You're hearing House Minority Leader Representative Vincent Candelora here on Where We Live. If you have a question for Representative Candelora, here's the number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to move on and talk about the latest uh, bill that was approved in the Connecticut House. There's a long debate that spanned from midday Monday to before dawn on Tuesday, the House approving a bill to end religious exemptions to school vaccine requirements. Uh, The religious exemption has been used by some parents who think vaccines are dangerous, although doctors and public health experts say that vaccines are safe and they do a good job of preventing deadly diseases. We know this proposal has to still go before the state Senate. Why did you vote against the measure, Representative Candelora? So I think the bill falls short. Um, On the one hand, one of the things that we heard loud and clear is that individuals that are exercising religious exemption are either you know concerned about vaccines or their children present some sort of medical issue that they they need to get a medical exemption but are unable to because our federal law is so restrictive um, on when an individual can get a medical exemption and so doctors won't provide it the good part of the bill is that it, it it expands the ability for doctors to give medical exemptions and so i was glad the public health committee recognized uh, that issue in the public hearing and tried to address it. What the bill fails to address is what we're gonna do with these students who are all disenfranchised from our public and private school system. Um, We can't just throw them out of school. And so I did support an amendment that brought the exemption to kindergarten. So anybody that's currently enrolled in school will not be thrown out of school. But those that have not yet enrolled, we need to figure out a way to educate them. And so um, it's something that I'm still committed to do, but primarily that was why I voted against the bill because it, it uh, we have a constitutional right in this state to an education. We pride ourselves. We've seen the impact of COVID on, on isolation with children and to take a population of children and isolate them and prevent them from going to school, I think is not good public policy. I understand there are 15 states and D.C. that allow for philosophical or personal belief exemptions to school vaccines. Obviously, Connecticut doesn't have that. It's the medical exemption or the religious exemption. Do you believe that this is being misused, Representative Candelora? I think people are utilizing it because they they cannot get a medical exemption. So I'm careful to not question the sincerity of someone's religious beliefs because there are religions that don't believe in vaccines, but I do believe uh, people trend to the religious exemption because the medical is not an option for them. I think with this new law and how it has restructured the medical exemption and how it's provided counseling for families to encourage them to get vaccines and to talk about the efficacy and safety of vaccines, that I'm hopeful that we will move in that direction where you will see more children getting vaccinated and utilizing the medical when appropriate Um, So that's the part of the bill I think that was important. 
You can join our conversation again with Representative Vincent Candelora, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, earlier, you talked about uh, in the pandemic with children not in school and isolated, it's not good for them, it's not good for their families either. But I was thinking also this pandemic uh, has really sh- and helped the public understand the importance of herd immunity, that vaccines not only keep individuals safe, but the community at large safe uh, from diseases that have been eradicated. And then we hear about what's happening in New York, where there was a measles outbreak just a few years ago, and now New York State no longer has a religious exemption. And so I'm just curious, you know, what role you believe government should play when we're thinking about uh, the, the health of our community at large and maybe some of these families who have children in school because of medical reasons that can't get the vaccine, if the threshold falls too low, what does that mean for them? Yeah, I think if, if obviously the, we need to maintain uh, the herd immunity in our school system. So the current structure that we have, um, that DPH has the ability to you know, remove unvaccinated children from school, uh, not just people exercising a religious one, but you, to your point, individuals with medical exemptions, um, those numbers need to be tracked very carefully. What was a little bit disturbing that we discovered is that we have over 20,000 children that are in our school systems um, that have no paperwork being submitted. So we need to do a better job. DPH needs to enforce the current um, laws on the books because um, you know unvaccinated children in the schools could pose a problem if we drop below herd immunity. But to find out that we have 20,000 individuals um, that don't have either and we're just not enforcing our laws is unacceptable. And so I'm hoping that we, we do a better job of that. You know, the dialogue of vaccine hesitancy, fortunately, is, is getting into a better direction. I think people are, are more apt to get vaccines because of um, what's happened with COVID. And I think initially a lot of this vaccine hesitancy revolved around the HPV vaccine. Um, and I think that now that people have peeled back off of that issue, um, we don't see sort of the, the previous legislation where we tried to force the HPV vaccine in order to enroll in public schools, putting that issue aside and focusing on the ones that are truly dangerous, like the measles and, and are highly contagious. Um, I think it's putting the discussion into a better place. Again, you can join my conversation with House Minority Leader Representative Vincent Candelora, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, you know, we are unfortunately are still in this pandemic, but so many more people are getting the COVID vaccine. People are starting to feel like they can safely see their family and extended relatives again and, and get back to some sort of normal. Uh, Representative Candelora, we know that Governor Lamont has announced he's going to end all pandemic uh, requirements, except for the mask mandate on May 19th, and those rules are mostly based on his emergency authority, which is set to expire May 20th. So what's your response to relaxing these rules at this point, and also what's going to happen post May 20th when we've seen the uh, executive authority be extended uh, several times? Yeah, I I think overall, uh, my biggest concern right now is as the vaccines are being rolled out, what I'm seeing anecdotally in my communities are the younger populations are now getting COVID um, and some are being hospitalized from it. And I, so I think our younger populations, the 20 to 40 year olds um, should continue to be diligent because while they tend to not pose a risk uh, when they receive the, vac- uh, the, the, the virus, 
if they get infected, we are still seeing hospitalizations of those ages and people are um, experiencing some complications. So we can't let our guard down. I think it's important generally for us to just be very hyper vigilant um, in uh, you know washing our hands in wearing masks indoors um, and and hopefully as we finish with this rollout by June 1st you know we'll be in a much better spot uh, public health experts say that you know getting rid of social distancing requirements some of these other uh, rules being relaxed may not be the best time to do this uh, May 19th. And so do you worry that while people will be encouraged to do so, we're not going to see that happen? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that there are going to be um, businesses that are still, I know I took my dog to the vet. They asked me if I was vaccinated or not. Um, if I was, I'm allowed to go in. If I'm, if I'm not, I need to stay in my car. I think you might see businesses continue, um, you know, that type of policy. Um, I do think the social distancing in a restaurant probably would help businesses to maintain that because we already we have roughly 60% of our society that are still very hesitant and don't think we should be rolling back um, some of these guidelines. So it probably behooves businesses to keep those in place so the public um, feels safe. I think the outdoor activities are are very safe and we could probably relax guidelines outside based on the science, um, you know, indoor, again, as we, we start to reach herd immunity with the vaccines, uh, you know, eventually we'll be in a place to be able to loosen up some of those distancing guidelines, but, but I don't think we're quite there yet. And as far as the governor's emergency authority, do you expect it will end on May 20th? Do you want to see it completely end then? No, I think from a practical standpoint, there needs to be some level of oversight of this pandemic past May 20th. And so we need to address it, whether it be through a declaration or through some sort of legislative oversight. But one thing I think is important that our caucus has fought for is we need to change the underlying laws that give way to the declarations. Right now, our governor could unilaterally declare emergencies uh, and take power from the legislature without any input. I think it's imperative that the legislature uh, actually vote to, to if they're going to delegate their authority, they should be allowed to vote for that delegation as opposed to a governor just taking it. And so we should honor the three separate branches of government and have that process in place. So I am hopeful that we will pass legislation before May 20th um, that fixes the way we go about declaring uh, a declaration first. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, my guest today, Republican Minority Leader Vincent Candelora. He's in the House uh, Representatives in the Connecticut General Assembly. We're going to continue talking with him after the break, and we'll take your questions too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, House Minority Leader Representative Vincent Candelora. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, I understand the Democratic co-chairs of the Appropriations Committee will be announcing new details of their budget proposal this morning. Uh, Representative Candelora, what do you know about the Appropriations Committee proposals? Do you expect to see any surprises in the spending bill? Um, 
not too many surprises, a little bit predictable, but um, I am surprised that we see the public option proposal incorporated into their budget as well as the, the money from the commercialization of cannabis included. Uh, both of those proposals have been on life support uh, in other committees. And so to see it resurrected in the budget is going to make for an interesting showdown, I think, um, in this upcoming month. So let's talk about cannabis. I know a lot of our listeners have questions about it. Um, John tweeted, uh, he wants to hear what you're doing to pass marijuana legalization. I understand that's not something you support. No, generally speaking, I think it's a, it's a dangerous health policy. But if we're going to do it, what I would suggest is we look at Vermont. Um, Vermont's model is a homegrown model uh, where you allow a certain amount of plants for individuals to, to grow. The philosophy behind that is it's it's less um, it's less harmful because it's not sort of manufacturing a high THC level. It's more of a natural product. It's safer. Um, the second piece would be they have a retail market, but they limit the THC content that could be sold in their products, and they limit the type of products. So you wouldn't see the gummy bears or flavored sodas that are marketed to children um, under the Connecticut proposal. It really is a commercialization piece uh, on steroids. It sort of follows the, the Colorado model um, where you could really create any product that could market to any uh, anyone of any age and the THC content could be upward of 90%. I think that's the wrong approach. It ends up being more about profit and less about allowing people the freedom uh, to smoke marijuana. So. Um, we're, we're in the wrong direction right now, I think, as a state. You said earlier that you think that the cannabis uh, proposals is on life support. So tell me more about some of the conversations you're having with your colleagues on both sides of the aisle. What are the sticking points? Yeah, so we haven't even gotten to the discussion of the health uh, aspect of it. And, and those are the, the issues that I'm interested in. But what's happened is within the Democrat Party, there's a fight over who gets the profits. So when we hear discussions about equity, there is a push to allow individuals that have had uh, prior convictions from the sale of marijuana to give them priority to get the licenses to sell marijuana. Uh, and then additionally, how is the money gonna be carved up? Uh, the bill that came out of the Judiciary Committee essentially had 80% of the money going to our cities and towns um, and only 15% going toward drug rehab. Um, and there are people that feel that uh, that money should be going toward individuals who have been impacted by by the drug as opposed to giving it to our cities and towns. So it becomes a, a fight over who is going to get to profit off of it. And then where did the state tax dollars go? When we talk about um, more of this, uh, the profits, if it's legalized, going to, to cities, uh, when we hear from uh, lawmakers from the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus and others, you know, they talk about the criminalization uh, of uh, drugs, especially marijuana, in their communities and how many of them have been sent to prison. Shouldn't that be part of the discussion if we're talking about legalization as well? Yeah, I, it certainly should be. And, and we've already decriminalized um, small possession of marijuana uh, in the state of Connecticut about 10 years ago. So people really are not going to jail um, just on a marijuana charge. It's usually related to something else. Uh, so I, I think that the, the equity piece, you know, the conversation I'd like to have is 
how these drugs have impacted our communities. And if, if there's money that's going to be generated around marijuana, um, it should be it should be more grassroots and pointed toward um, how to address um, the negative impacts of marijuana use in the cities. Giving the grants to our cities and towns doesn't ensure that that money would actually reach those individuals. It ensures that government will have more money to spend. And so I think that's where the rub is. Um, you've mentioned, you know, you're worried about the societal costs of legalizing marijuana, others as well. But, you know, do, do lawmakers like yourself and others, do you have the same reservations when uh, the state talks about expanding gambling and has a new deal with uh, the tribes to allow online betting? Because we think about the ease of, of, of gambling now on cell phones and how that could really make problem gambling worse in our state. So what kind of conversations are happening around that? Yeah, those conversations are early, but absolutely, we have huge concerns um, about the ease of online gaming and, and certainly how to restrict it. You know, our our kids are glued into their phones. It's it's where they get their information. Um, it's where they interact with each other. Uh, if we're adding in gaming as well, I think it's dangerous. Um, you know, I have teenagers right now and, and their exposure to the amount of different types of THC uh, and different delivery models where kids are just doing it in the classroom or just going to the bathroom it's odorless now and, and they could get intoxicated pretty quickly um, this modernized world is is bringing posing a lot of challenges i think for individuals and so to the extent we modernize gaming um, and allow for the online apps uh, i think we we certainly do need to look at more um, programs to help with problem gambling um, I wish the online apps would be limited to use while you're on the casino premises. So uh, at least it wouldn't be in the, the virtual world uh, in our homes. Uh, but I'm not sure that we're going to be able to prevent that from happening. So what are the solutions, the long-term solutions, when we think of, I guess, new revenue sources for the state? We know that Connecticut for a long time has had huge pension liabilities. Those aren't going away uh, you know, year after year, uh, billion dollar deficits that need to be plugged. If new revenue from, say, legalization of cannabis or uh, allowing online betting and doesn't come to our state. So how do we solve these long term issues, Representative Candelora? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we don't need the vices to, to solve those problems because I think those are only going to create more expenses for us. But in 2017, when we did our bipartisan budget, um, we, we put in some caps in place that Republicans really push for, where we have revenue caps and volatility caps, which essentially just say, let's not spend all of our money. Um, let's spend 90% of it. And then let's take some of that money and put it into our savings account. And when we're budgeting, let's not budget and shoot for the sky on revenue. Let's budget a more realistic number that reflects our stock market volatility. Because we've done that, we now see a rainy day fund of $3 billion generated in just a few years. And, and that continues. And now what's happening is that all of that excess money uh, is now being put into our uh, pension liabilities. So we're seeing a reduction in our pension liabilities. I don't think anyone believed or imagined that Connecticut would have a 15% savings account reserve. We're now over that number. And so that was done without any new taxes. One of my disappointments is that the budget being proposed today is undoing, trying to undo a lot of those good policies. 
and we need to refrain from that temptation. Uh, even the marijuana money is being moved, the proposal is to move it into an off-budget account. And what I'm afraid is what I'm seeing happen is we're trying to move spending off budget and revenue off budget because then it pulls it out from under those caps that are providing good discipline and good policy for our state so we could get out of this vicious cycle that we're in. I want to fit in a quick call. Tom's calling in from Hartford. Tom, we just have a couple minutes left. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. I'm calling because I have some uh, comments about the medical marijuana program here in Connecticut. I've been a patient for five or six years now, and I'm really worried that, and I actually agree with the representative that we are going in a direction where this is mostly about profit. Um, I go into my local dispensary, and products are becoming more expensive. I'm still not allowed to grow, although even with the basic knowledge, if you study up enough, you can learn how to make gummies at home and stuff like that. But I really do hope that the state of Connecticut takes a good look and tries to reduce profit and, well, use the profit for good things, but also to um, try to make the, the products cheaper. Thank you, Tom, I, for your comment. Go ahead, Representative. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I think we have to look at the pricing of our medical um, and look at how we, we reduce those costs. We make it easier to get medical cards. People who might be terminally ill, it takes so long to get a card that they may pass away before they can get the treatment for pain using marijuana. So I, I also would like to focus on a lot of reform for the medical program. I think it's done great things for Connecticut and we can make it better for those patients. Uh, before we run out of time, I wanted to bring up this bipartisan agreement just announced yesterday uh, to help pay back money the state has borrowed to cover the huge costs of unemployment benefits during the pandemic. What's the reaction to this deal? You were there. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled that our construction industry and our um, and business industry have come together and we've seen an agreement. It truly is historic. It's, it's a 30-year reform uh, in the making. And I think in the long run, it, what it will essentially do is businesses that use the funds will have to pay a little bit more and businesses that don't will pay less. And most businesses will see a reduction. And then we won't see the insolvency as often as we have seen in the past um, 40 years. And so I am hopeful that that is one small piece of legislation that, again, will improve the business climate in Connecticut and help grow jobs. You had also supported using some federal money to shore up this trust fund. Is that something that uh, maybe is that off the table now, now that you've come up with this agreement? No, I think it very much needs to be on the table because, you know, our businesses were impacted so badly by this pandemic. And to think that they need to come up with almost a billion dollars to pay back into that fund uh, when this was no fault of their own is only going to slow down our recovery. So to the extent that we could use some of that federal money, to pay down that, that fund will help our economy recover much quicker. Okay, last cue, got to squeeze it in. You're one of the most uh, prominent Republicans in the state. Any thoughts on who should be the party's next state chair? Uh, I am. I have taken a pass from that right now. I'm still seeing more <laughs> people jumping in. And, uh, you know, I look forward to the debate. I'm glad we have so many individuals that are interested in taking up those reins. And whoever it is, I'm looking forward to working very closely with them to get our our message out to Connecticut residents. Representative Vincent Candelora, again, House Minority Leader in the Connecticut General Assembly. Thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good day.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we hear from Channel 3 Chief Political Reporter Susan Rath after the break. First, it's our Connecticut Public Radio Spring Membership Drive. Support where we live and all the great programming. Here's how. And you're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Ray Hardman here with Lori Mack, and this is our April radio drive, hoping that you can get on board and support the programming that you listen to, the programming that you rely on here on Connecticut Public Radio. It's a very simple phone call, 1-800-584-2788. That's the number to get started, 1-800-584-2788. You can also go online at wnpr.org. But it's so important as we get to the end of this fiscal year, we want to make sure everything's in place so we can go into the next fiscal year bringing you uh, the best that we have to offer. 1-800-584-2788. And we have a lot to offer. But, you know, you should think about this. Most of our funding comes from you. You help support all the programming you hear on the station. It's your support that allows us to bring you shows like the one you're hearing today, Where We Live. We're dedicated to bringing you news, information, and unique shows like Where We Live. Our station is also dedicated to other exciting programs that you can only get here, all centered around journalism. But we can't achieve those goals without your support. If you'd like to pledge your support in the name of good journalism and renewed commitment to providing you with the news and information that you've come to count on, we're asking you to consider becoming a member of this station. If you're already a member, thank you. If not, we're hoping you'll join us and come on board. And you can do that online or by phone. You can go online at WNPR.org or call us at 1-800-584-2788. We're here to ask for your support in keeping the station and this service, the show Where We Live on the Air. Our primary focus is to provide you with information, and we try every day to bring you news and information that helps you make better decisions, develop more informed opinions. We also hope you that we provide you with a little entertainment in between. Again, that number is 1-800-584-2788 or online at WNPR.org. Now, one of the great thank you gifts, by the way, you can see all of the great thank you gifts at WNPR.org, but this is special for this particular pledge drive. And uh, once again this year, we're offering some nice things in celebration of Mother's Day. Yes, it's coming up and you'll want to, you know, be a little nice to that mom or mom (laughs) in your life or mom-like figure in your life. So This is for a gift of $12.50 a month. You can choose either the Mother's Day Spring Bouquet or a dozen gourmet chocolate-dipped strawberries. They'll be delivered Mm. the Friday before Mother's Day. So this is a great way to go. You know, you're taking care of something very important, which is becoming a member of the station, and you're also doing something really nice for that mom in your life. So consider that. Call us with a pledge of support at 1-800-584-2788. Where we live, I want to concentrate on this for a second. This show brings you such a variety of issues across the state. It's able to get you into a topic on a level that we don't really have time to do on the news side. Lucy and her producers meet every day. They talk, they listen, they research, and they plan thoughtful shows on topics like the one you're hearing today. It's not easy to do a daily show. This They make it look really easy, but hours of preparation go into a single hour-long show. And we need you. We need you to help make this happen. Producers and reporters, we rarely leave this work at home 
uh, we rarely ever leave the work at the station is what I mean to say at the end of the day. So we're hoping that you'll help us continue to do the work that you've come to count on us for. And you can do that by calling us at 1-800-584-2788. You can also go online and look at those great thank you items that Ray was just talking about at WNPR.org. You know, think about um, how important this programming is to you. Think about how much you've listened uh, over the last year, two years, four years uh, to what is happening around the world, knowing that National Public Radio and Connecticut Public Radio will be there. One of the great things about Lucy's show, she has the governor in about once a month. She has the congressional delegation in from time to time. And, you know, these are hard interviews to get, but uh, I think they understand how important this service is and they understand how many listeners we have at a given time that are listening to that program. So it's important journalism, and it needs your support. The phone number is 1-800-584-2788. Maybe you'll want to pick up the Mother's Day Spring Bouquet or the Dozen Gourmet Chocolate Dipped Strawberries. But whatever level that you support this programming at, it's going to be important to ending this goal, uh, this pledge drive successfully. 1-800-584-2788. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nobethanchel. Tomorrow, the Federal Communications Commission Acting Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel joins us. She's a West Hartford native as we talk about why broadband internet and phone service has become so essential, especially now during the pandemic. Join us tomorrow. Now, we just heard from a Republican leader in the Connecticut General Assembly, Representative Vincent Candelora. He's House Minority Leader. For more context, joining us now on Zoom is Susan Raff, WFSB Channel 3 chief political reporter. Susan, nice to t- hear from you again. Nice to see you or hear from you also. <laughs> I've been listening into your conversation uh, with the House Minority Leader. You certainly covered a lot of topics this morning. So what stood out to you? I know you talked to Representative uh, Candelore and so many of his colleagues on, on a daily basis. Well, I think the most recent, obviously, is the, uh, you know, the religious exemption. And, you know, that's been an issue that's been passionate on both sides. And it's it's not a done deal yet. It still has to go to the Senate. But uh, Vinnie Candelora did mention uh, some things that I think are important and that there was some compromise. Keep in mind, five Republicans voted for this. Now, this is not bipartisan legislation by any stretch of the imagination. But there were a couple of proposals uh, that did pass and Republicans uh, were supportive of that. One has to do with grandfathering uh, in people. uh, So any existing student now would not have to fall under these new guidelines. Um, And that was important uh, for um, a lot of people. Also, it broadens the medical uh, uh, exemption. So it gives people a little bit more uh, freedom, if you will, uh, to use that medical exemption, which it was important to uh, many of the lawmakers who supported it. The Democrats hold the majority in the assembly. So why were these compromises needed, Susan? I understand there were uh, many Democratic lawmakers who didn't want to grandfather it in. Well, I think that's a good question. I think ultimately it is going to pass. The House Speaker, uh, who was not the Speaker, obviously, in the last legislative session, was a big supporter of getting rid of the religious exemption, uh, Matt Ritter. Uh, and Democrats do have the majority. And I think it is going to pass. But I think 
that every lawmaker has to look at their constituency and try to find room to compromise. Because again, I'm not sure necessarily, well, it, it could be a black-white issue, but I think that they want to show that they are willing to look at all issues uh, in this debate and pass legislation that hopefully will benefit people. You know, I wanted to read a, a tweet from a listener who writes, parents should be provided some sort of educational course right after becoming parents about vaccines and the schedule. 15 or 30 minutes at a pediatrician's office is not sufficient time for someone who's already hesitant about vaccines. So that's kind of interesting to think about the emphasis on more education, Susan. Well, it is, but I think there are a couple of things to consider. One, I think there are about, there are a little over 7,000 people in Connecticut or parents who use the religious exemption. And there are uh, 20,000 uh, who are in what's called non-compliance. So those are parents who are not using the religious exemption. And for whatever reason, they're not getting their children vaccinated, whether they're not bringing them to the doctor, maybe they lack adequate health care, uh, maybe they, they don't know enough about the vaccine. So yes, I think education is very important when it comes to that. But I disagree with the House Minority Leader that you know the majority of people who uh, are not getting this vaccine and using the religious exemption are using it because they want a medical exemption. I think there's a there's a uh, percentage of people who just do not want this vaccine. Um, and I've met many. I've interviewed them. They don't want the COVID vaccine either. So I'm not sure you're going to convince uh, those people that edu with education uh, to get the vaccine. I think they're pretty, uh, you know, uh, set in what they believe in. Can we talk more about uh, the governor's plan to relax uh, most pandemic restrictions, except for that mask mandate? I'm just wondering what you're hearing about from residents uh, and also other leaders about these restrictions being relaxed in about a month. Right. You know, that was eye opening. We actually um, I did a story about that yesterday and spoke to a lot of people. And I even met a woman who uh, had not been to a grocery store in over a year uh, and finally went back uh, this past week. And there are people who are just not comfortable with dining indoors. Many haven't. And I think they're very concerned about going uh, inside. In fact, uh, Eyewitness News did a, like an unscientific viewer poll and we found a majority of people, I think it was 53%, who feel that it may be too soon to lift uh, these restrictions. Uh, but we did have an opportunity to talk to other people who feel that it's time uh, and as long as they wear a mask. Also, um, we spoke to a professor of public health at the University of New Haven uh, who said that, you know, we are reaching uh, a very close number to herd immunity, which is 70%. I think Connecticut now has a 61% uh, vaccination rate. Um, so I guess it's what you're comfortable with, right? Uh, but again, uh, you know, there, is, there are people who are just not comfortable going in and, you know, sitting close to other people and maybe they may wait a while. And, but on the other side of that, I think there are people who are ready. And I think businesses are certainly ready. They're going to have to find that comfortable balance to get people to come back uh, and enjoy their you know, restaurants. Also, there's expanded outdoor dining, which the governor uh, signed legislation, I believe, last week. Uh, and that gives restaurants a lot more flexibility to have tables outside. And the weather is nicer now. So restaurants, uh, you know, are pretty pleased they'll be able to get more people back outside. Mm 
Just uh, three minutes left. I asked Representative Kendall Laura just briefly about this deal to shore up the Unemployment uh, Benefits Trust Fund. I know you've been covering the unemployment situation in our state. People are still out of work and, and are seasonal work uh, workers, the industry, struggling to find people for jobs that are available, Susan. Right. Well, there's good news, I think, in that the economy seems to be getting better. We're adding, I think, some 3,000 more jobs. You know, Connecticut's unemployment rate is still pretty high. It's over 8 percent. But businesses are feeling a little more comfortable. I think it's uh, largely due to the vaccination rate. I think that people are getting vaccinated. So businesses are, you know, are feeling better about uh, expanding their workforce or uh, certainly bringing people back. Uh, but, you know, Connecticut borrowed a lot of money to uh, fill the uh, unemployment insurance fund um, and businesses pay that. Um, so this agreement that was signed yesterday is, is quite historic uh, in the sense that it will fund it long term. I mean, that pot of money runs out a lot. And I think, you know, they knew that was coming. And this obviously will help businesses and uh, something that they're talking about is using the rainy day fund and some of the federal uh, money to put into that so that the burden is not so, uh, you know, uh, severe on businesses because they're the ones who pay into this unemployment insurance fund. You've been hearing Susan Raft. She's WFSB Channel 3 chief political reporter. I remember meeting you way back in 2006 when I moved to Connecticut to be a reporter. You're a real pro and always very gracious. Thank you, Susan, for your time today. You're very welcome, and I hope you have a wonderful afternoon. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer. It's also Connecticut Public Radio's spring membership campaign. We talk about a lot here on the show, including hearing from elected officials. We get context from longtime reporters. We talk to so many of you, and we ask you just a few times a year to support the programming that you hear. So if you appreciate where we live, here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. Good morning. This is Where We Live, and you're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. So glad you're listening this morning. I'm here. My name is Lori Mack. I'm here with Ray Hardman, my colleague, who, by the way, has been producing a lot of great stuff on Connecticut Public Television and Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, Ray, you've been in the business for a while. You understand the challenge of coming up with new ideas, researching, conducting pre-interviews, and then working to develop those ideas into really fantastic stories. And you've been doing a lot of great work lately, just like where we live. A lot of work goes into this type of programming, and we're hoping you'll want to support it. Again, we've been telling you the number all morning. That number, again, is 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online at WNPR.org. Where We Live brings you a variety of issues all across the state. We've been telling you that. You've been hearing it throughout uh, the years that you've been listening. We're asking you to contribute to this radio service that brings you this show, as well as all the news and information that you hear every single day. This is also where you hear my very talented colleague like Ray, uh, or, or my other very talented colleagues as well. You uh, you guys put in a lot of time to bring us some great ideas, some great conversations, some really interesting stories. And we hope that you'll 
continue to support us as a listener. Uh, you can do that by going to 1-800-584-2788 or online at WNPR.org. Yeah, that's the that's the first step. And uh, while you're there, you may want to pick up a, a thank you item. And we do have some great ones. You can see all of them at WNPR.org. But let me tell you about a special one that is happening during this particular pledge drive. And this is uh, really a contribution that will also kind of double your uh, altruism, uh, if you will. Uh, this is a special special partnership with the Village for Families and Children. Your contribution will help feed a child for a week through the Village's after-school program. This is for a gift of $15 a month. The extended day treatment program helps support children in need of therapeutic care for social, emotional, and behavioral disorders. So this is really something nice that we can, that you can uh, send along. You're supporting your public radio station and you're also helping a child in need. So consider that $15 a month uh, contribution and call us 1-800-584-2788. That's a really important thing to do. That's a, that's much bigger than me, much bigger than us. Um, and we strive to help. We strive to help make sense of everything, the world, our communities. And we hope that you'll continue to support what we do, that work that we try to bring you, the stories that we try to bring you, the great stuff that we try to do on a daily basis. Again, 1-800-584-2788. You can also go online to wnpr.org and thanks. Thanks.